This is a letter written to the nurses and doctors at the NICU, written in the month of December of the year 2013. There was no diagnosis at the time. I am and I was a broadcaster telling ridiculous stories about ridiculous things. I gave birth to a baby who was very ill. Instead of controlling everything, I lost control, and I had to put mine and my baby's life in the hands of others. Our baby was born with pneumonia, and three hours after delivery, he was rushed to the NICU. I had a ton of complications during my pregnancy, but they all resolved, and after three years of trying to have a baby, we shouldn't have been surprised when he decided to make us work a little harder to bring him home. The first week was a blur, baby blues mixed with long nights and mass sense of safety. I was crying and then smiling in the hallways at the hospital. I didn't think the outcome would be bad. It was week two that it really set in. Our baby was not like the others that surrounded us at the hospital. They were all very small, but not necessarily sick. Day after day, people would reassure us that they knew someone who was born only two pounds or one pound or born at 28 weeks and their babies were fine. Eventually, I had to tell them all to stop the stories because my baby wasn't fine and was almost term. Our little guy was born a healthy six pounds, but by week two, he was down to four. His sunken lungs were having trouble grasping for air. And the nurses could poke him with countless IVs and you wouldn't hear a peep out of his tiny little mouth. Week two was difficult, but we knew that there would be an end. We didn't know that week three would bring a whole new set of problems. During this time, not only did we rely on family, but also our friends, people that we once had in our life to go to parties with, people who I talked to on the phone to tell them the latest gossip and the latest drama. We had friends drop off cookies, we had meals delivered, and we had people from our past call, email, and Facebook. Every day at the NICU, we would have a different nurse. She would spend 12 hours with us helping me do motherly things that one would do with their child at home. She would comfort me, and then I would break down in tears beside his incubator. She would reassure us over and over and over again that he was going to be all right. And sometimes she would even hint to us at 3 a.m. that we should have a second opinion from a different doctor at the hospital because something didn't seem right. These nurses became our friends, and they were the people that got us through this horrible journey. We've now been in the hospital for three months, every day trying to get Colt stronger. His pneumonia, aspirations, acid reflux has left us hopeless and guessing, almost questioning every medical move. I've become Dr. Google, but most importantly, I have learned how to rely on others. We have watched nurses support and care for babies when the mother just can't. We have watched nurses save lives, monitor, and access. But most importantly, we've become friends with them. We've realized that there are lives past ours, these lives that make tremendous differences in even the smallest of people, our children. Joel and I would like to thank you all for showing us your world and helping us when we've needed it the most. We will be eternally grateful for your wisdom and friendship. After one case of severe reflux, two bouts of pneumonia, two echoes, two ECGs, three attempts at an MRI, four IVs, five ultrasounds, 10 days of antibiotics, 28 days of oxygen, 45 days of feeding tubes, over 50 needle pricks, countless x-rays, numerous days of medications, and 90 days of compassion, we're going home. Thank you so much. Love, Cole, Josie, and Joel. Whew. Wow. <laughs> oh my god that was a doozy um 
yeah, that was an emotional time in our lives. I can't even breathe that without crying. That's crazy. And I had no idea that Cole even had a syndrome at that point. I just knew that we had lived a nightmare and I had no idea that the nightmare was going to continue. I'm Josie Dye, and today on Love and Special Needs, uh, we are going to dedicate this episode to talking about the NICU, the sounds that will forever haunt you, the people who you least expect to save you and give you that moment of solitude, and the terms that none of us ever understand. And I think we should start with that. Brady, okay? It's something that is stuck in my head. It's like ironed in my memory. I hate that word. I'm traumatized by that word. Um, But if you don't know what it is, so a baby can't really leave the hospital until they stop having Brady's. And for premature babies, it happens once they mature. But for parents of term babies, it's a nightmare. And it's a nightmare that never seems to end. So what a Brady is, it's any decrease in the baby's heart rate below 100 beats per minute, and it lasts longer than 15 seconds, and it requires stimulation. So it requires a doctor or a nurse or even a parent. Cole, my son, was having Brady's hourly. His heart rate would drop, an alarm would go off, doctors and nurses would rush to his side to stimulate him. And it got to the point where I was able to actually do it on my own, and that's how frequently those happened. See, no baby is allowed to actually leave the hospital, as I mentioned, but we ended up being the exception. The NICU is not a fun place. Everyone has a different experience. For us, it was unique because we were in one room. So we had one large room with 12 babies in it and we saw babies die. We comforted moms who had lost a baby while taking care of another. We saw babies who had police escorts. We also saw babies who were HIV positive. It's an emotional experience and no parent is ever going through the same thing. I want to talk to a mom who had a preemie and find out what her experience was like because it was definitely very different than mine. Uh, But right now, I want to tell you about my knight in shining armor, a woman whose impact seemed insignificant to some at the hospital. But to a mom like me, she saved me from my thoughts, from my anxiety. She gave me small moments here and there. Um, They called her a baby cuddler. I definitely think that name needs to change because what she did is is more than just cuddle a child. I should probably let you know my child suffered from severe reflux, which meant he couldn't be put down. So we walked him upright in the hospital um, with all of the wires attached to him. And it was nonstop for us, nonstop. So I want to say thank you and thank God for her. Uh, this is Susan Portner. Susan, why does someone need a cuddler? Because when mom and or dad or both have been in the hospital for 14 or 15 or 16 hours and they go home to try and get some rest or or look after another child, it is comforting for a, a, a parent to know that there is somebody there who is trained to hold their they're sometimes very ill baby with tubes and lines and breathing issues and God knows what. And and to, to give them just a, a little bit of peace, just a little bit of of peace isn't even the right word, but a respite. It's like it's like palliative care. It's like respite care and palliative care. You give people a break so they can be better caregivers. So 
being a cuddler is holding Cole, you know, when he could hardly breathe because of his pneumonia and you knowing that he was okay and he was safe. I get so emotional I'm already thinking it looks like I'm like crying. Yeah. I get emotional because I think you're also downplaying. <laughs> Those words are actually even downplaying what I felt because you're like a bit of of peace. Um, when you were there with Cole, if, I don't care if it was one hour or if it was 10 minutes, my anxiety went from 100 to 20%. Like just for that right. moment, those were the moments where I ate food or I went to the washroom or I grabbed a hairbrush and brushed my hair or I called my mom. And it was so small. It was such a small moment, but it was needed. And I have a very different scenario than a lot of other people. So, and I think this is really interesting because with, with Cole, he was really fighting with reflux as well. So mm-hmm. um, when you put him, laid him down, laid him down, excuse me, on a bed, uh, like most of the nurses do, because the nurses are overworked and we know that they're yeah. working and working and working and in no fault of their own, they are, um, they don't have time to be with my child. But if I put him down after breastfeeding him, for one minute, then it's three hours of him screaming because the milk comes up. So if I could yeah. pass him on to someone like you who walked with him and talked to him and held him and just walked in circles, because I had been walking in circles for three hours, pumping, yeah. trying to breastfeed, you know, doing it all over again. And when the days yeah. when you were there, the days when you were there, it was it was just like this the sun kind of was shining for a second. So do these, do they still happen? Do these, like the color programs, do they still exist? They, they do at Sunnybrook. I don't know if they do at Sinai. Um, my daughter-in-law is about to have a child there. So I guess we'll soon find out or ho- hopefully we won't need to find out. Um, but I, at, certainly at Sunnybrook, there, there is a core group. Um, and we were, I think the original pilot program, we were six people, then two people dropped out because it, it's, it isn't for everybody. To, to hold, and particularly if you have a child that you can't walk around with and you, you are just holding that child in a somewhat awkward position, but you have to hold its head up and it's, you've got tubes going and the monitors are going off and the child is stopping to breathe. So you have to really be confident in your training and yourself to be able to do that so that you, God forbid, don't do anything to the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there, it, it's a very, uh, it's an inexact science for sure. Um, and it's, it's, I think for some people, they think it's just going to be going and holding a baby and walking around and singing songs. And that's not really how it works because these babies are so fragile and so unwell mm-hmm. that, you know, and the mummies and daddies are just like totally, as you said, totally overwhelmed and worried and scared. Is some, is my baby going to be okay? Is this going to be okay? Or where is this going? And if you have a 23 weeker, is this baby going to live another day, another week, another moment? You know, so it's, it, it's all of that. And so I think it being in the cuddler role is more than just holding the baby. It's supporting mom and dad. It's, it's, it's making mom and dad feel confident in, in you holding the most precious thing in their lives. What made you want to do this? 
Well, I'm a granny. Um, I've had a couple of kids of my own. Um, I've lost babies at late stage pregnancy. Um, so I've sort of had those kinds of experience. And, and I'm just sort of, and emotionally, I'm a healthcare person. Like I worked in an AIDS hospice for 15 years, taking care of people dying of AIDS. So I, I, that's my, that's how I am. That's, I want to make, it sounds so cheesy, but if I can do something to improve somebody's lot in life, even just a little tiny bit, then, and it's not heroic and it's not being, you know, life-saving surgery. It's nothing like that. It's just, a, it's being able to, to give love that you have to somebody, some, you, you, Cole. I think that the, to, the times that stand out, it's not a feel good moment at all, but I remember when you were trying to have a conversation with a doctor about Cole and Cole was screaming and I was trying to get the nurse's attention because one of the things as a cuddler you're not allowed to do is take the baby out of its bed. You, you're not, you know, because of all of the things that are going on, it's a safety thing, which I totally agree with. Now, when the babies got bigger and better and stuff, I, and, and the nurses knew me, they, they knew I was fine to do that. But anyway, I remember I was trying to get the attention of the nurse to get, to get Cole out of his bed so that I could hold him so you could have a conversation about him with the doctor. And you were frazzled because you couldn't, you know, your baby's screaming. The doctor's trying to talk. The doctor's trying to talk over Cole, which was not happening at all. And finally, I got that lovely nurse. I can't remember her name. She was tall, very pretty, and had enormously long eyelashes. Brava <laughs> or somebody. I was just, I was, I was so obsessed with these eyelashes. I couldn't even, I, I was ridiculous. They sort of like fluttered in the wind. Anyway. She, she, I finally got her and I said, just give me this baby. That's all you have to, you don't have to do anything. Give me the baby. And she came over, she got Cole. I wandered off with Cole and you had your conversation. And I think Joel was there also with the doctor to figure out what next steps were. A cuddler, so incredibly important. And as I mentioned, uh, we should rename that skill because it does a disservice to all of the work that Susan and many others have done. I want to give you one day in the ICU um, a little story of just one, one of the many days that we went through. It was one of those nights, Joel, my husband, had his first outing away from the hospital and he hadn't seen his friends in months. I was going to sleep at the hospital. 8 p.m. hit and I was eating dinner beside Cole's bed when something unusual started happening with Cole's monitor. His heart rate was all over the place. And for preemie, that was okay. But for Cole, that was of what was very unusual. I remember calling the attending, the doctor at the time, and she was busy and she was dealing with babies who were dying. And I don't think she mean to be short, but I understood shit was going down and I wasn't in the labor ward. We were in the ICU, but we were the regulars. We were, you know, going in and out. Uh, we had been there at the time for three months. We were the longest NICU residents currently in our ward. And Joel had taken the night shift um, and I usually do the day shift. At 4 a.m., I would always set an alarm at home. Um, I would call the nurse on duty and I would get an update and I would wait all night till that 4 a.m. mark where I could call the nurse because you just you don't want to be 
the annoying one either, the annoying parent who calls all the time. I would wait till 4 a.m. I would call the nurse and then she would usually tell me if Cole was having a good night or a bad night. And that was the moment I would either sleep soundly or I would get up and go right to the hospital. Oftentimes, I didn't leave the hospital. And this was one of those nights. Uh, His heart rate wasn't stable. I called in a nurse who I loved. And here's the thing. You end up having your favorites. These nurses become your friends and your mentors. And you learn to give up a little bit of control so they can do their job. And she looked at me, this amazing woman who had spent so much time with Cole beside his bed, following my sticky notes. I think I had like 12 of them beside his bed. Um... And I remember her looking at me at that moment when his heart rate was all over the place and saying, Josie, something's wrong. And she's like, There's some, you need to go talk to another doctor. You need to figure this out. Um, and I remember her saying that she had never seen something like this before. And Cole was an unusual case. And the outcome wasn't going to be what they had predicted. And... I remember that moment because I remember calling Joel. I called him sweating, like pacing the hallways at Mount Sinai. I had, um, if you could have seen me at that moment, I had like old hair extensions in from my TV job three months earlier that were like currently showing. I had the same clothes. I always had the same clothes. I had, you know, washed my face. I was exhausted. Joel got dropped off at the back of the hospital, his normal entrance. And we both sat with Cole that night, knowing that we had tried everything and that our next step was genetic testing. And it was kind of like the thing we just didn't want to do. We had done a little bit of it, but we didn't want to go deeper into it. It's hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. And we waited till the round started in the morning. And every day they happen at 8 a.m. And it's where everything takes place. All the decisions, all your worries, you figure out how to communicate them during those rounds. The doctor arrived. Um, He was an exchange doctor from India. I think about this doctor daily and I wish I could find him. I wish I remembered who he was. I remember him putting his hands in my hands and he looked at me and he said, Josie, I want you to give me all your worries, please. For 24 hours, let me dedicate this full day to Cole. Let me do all your worrying for me. I took a deep breath and I was like, okay. (laughs) And I went home knowing that this incredible doctor was going to dedicate the next 24 hours just to Cole. And that was one day in the NICU. I want to introduce to you now a good friend of mine, Melissa Warner, who had a premature child. Um, A very, very different experience. I can't imagine what it would be like to be a mother of a premature child. Uh, I was there for some of her experience at the beginning. And so this is Melissa and this is her story. So I wanted to talk to you about my experience at the NICU. So my son, Mateo, uh, was born at 26 weeks. Um, What some people don't think about is the trauma associated with having a child in the NICU uh, begins earlier than their arrival at the NICU. So... I had a very normal, healthy, wonderful pregnancy until I didn't. And the loss and mourning of what should be one of the happiest days of your life of a child entering the world uh, becomes your worst nightmare in an instant. And 
I had my mucus plug break, uh, which is an indication that labor was coming on much too early. And I went to the hospital. I uh, didn't even tell my husband I was going because I didn't know what was happening at the time. And I just said, I guess I'm going to stop by. I called Josie and said, um, I need, you know, this is going on. What should I do? And uh, she said, hey, you should get checked out. So I, I went, didn't even tell my husband. I emailed my boss and said, I'm going to be 20 minutes late for our meeting. I just have to pop into the hospital. It turned out I went to the hospital and I never left um, for about two weeks later after my son was born. And I was laying there in shock, physically shaking, um, wondering, am I going to shake the baby out of my body? Quite literally terrified. Um, I've never felt such a lack of control and utter shock. Um, And so they explained to me, they had all the doctors come in. And when you have a baby who's born premature, the doctors come in and they explain to you everything that can go wrong with your baby, not just right away, but for the baby's uh, whole life. And so it's pretty overwhelming, uh, but they want to be realistic with you, which I appreciate. Um, So Mateo was born, ironically, uh, he was induced. (laughs) You'd think, why the heck was a baby induced at 26 weeks? Don't you want to hang on to him and keep him in? And the answer is absolutely yes. But my water broke and I was two days with my water broken. So they had to do a um, emergency um, induction uh, because he was showing signs of distress and infection. And sure enough, I did have an infection. So that decision that the doctor made, Sarah was her name, uh, saved his life. So she induced me, but then the uh, baby wasn't coming out fast enough, even with the induction. So they had to do an emergency C-section, knock me out. Um, When I came to, the first words out of my mouth were, is he alive? because they told me going in, he had about a 50-50 chance of survival. So while most people, you know, are holding their baby and excited, I was worried that my baby was dead. I, I wasn't sure if my baby was dead or alive because I was put to sleep. Um, after that, uh, the NICU journey began. Um, it's the little things in the NICU. Obviously, your child's hooked up to tubes, feeding tube, um, hooked up to machines. Life or death happens and comes and goes in waves. But then you have this really weird um, situation where you're institutionalized. So I would talk only with other NICU parents there because I quite literally for three months, which is how long he was in the NICU, went from my car to the NICU to my home, car, NICU, home, car, NICU, home, literally not even stopping for milk at the store. My parents were here to help, which was lovely with the practical stuff at home. And thankfully we had no other kids. So it was easier that way. We stayed overnight. We stayed, you know, we just came home every once in a while. Um, And one of the hardest moments for me was the day I had to leave my baby in the hospital to come home to sleep. They encouraged us to try to get at least a couple nights home to sleep. And I had to leave my newborn baby um, for like 12 hours. I had to leave him with strangers um, in the hospital. That was probably one of the hardest moments. Another one was when we got a call in the middle of the night that he got an infection. An infection for a, a micropremie could mean death. So that was another life or death situation for us. Um, so when you're in this situation where you're constantly dealing with life and death, you think, oh my God, aren't, wouldn't you be crying all the time? And there's certainly probably every day or maybe every other day, there was moments when I felt and said, I can't do this and would be literally in the fetal position on the floor crying. But then other times I would be laughing 
laughing about what movies to watch with the other parents because this weird insulated thing happens that that's your normal. Three months is not two days. Your body cannot stay in that trauma for long. So it was this fascinating psychological thing where my husband and I would be laughing and carrying on. Uh, vividly, I remember talking to one of the other NICU moms and we heard the beeps and we said, oh, who, whose baby is that? And we walked in and had to shake our baby because the heart was stopping. Um, so they're called braddies when the baby's heart stop. And that would happen, I don't know, maybe 40 times a day sometimes, maybe 20 on an average day uh, when the babies were first born that we'd say, oh, we have to go shake our baby because the heart's stopping. And that was just part of life. We would do that and continue on with our conversation about Brad Pitt's new movie. Um, it was really incredibly um, life-changing. It was um, something that I'm still seeking a therapist about for the, for the deep-rooted trauma. It's something that affects my parenting to this day and probably always will. So to other NICU moms, I wanna tell you you're not alone. It does get easier. Get a good therapist. Um, you do have trauma. Don't let anyone um, devalue that for you, uh, but you can do it because it's it's shocking what we can do. Next week's episode is going to be on siblings. We're not going to only talk to moms who have uh, siblings of children with rare diseases, but we're also going to talk to the kids, which is kind of cool. Um, not only do I bring my niece on, my other son, but we'll have, we'll have other Sotos siblings on to explain their sister or brother's syndrome.